Well, good morning to you. Uh, my name is Matt Luloyan, and I'm the pastor of Liberty Church uh, here in Harrisburg. Um, we are part of a family of churches called the Liberty Network, uh, and actually we're privileged today to have a, a group of folks with us from Liberty East. They were uh, camping in our great part of the state of Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania, uh, so they swung through on Sunday morning and spent uh, a little bit of time with us. So honored to be part of a network of churches where people can come and, and show up on a Sunday and feel like they already are, are home and, uh, and connected to people here. If you have Bibles, um, go ahead and make your way to Revelation chapter 19, which is, of course, the book of the Bible that everyone thinks about when they think about marriage. <laughs> Revelation. Newly, uh, newly engaged couples planning their wedding always have that difficult decision. Do I want the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13 read at my ceremony, or do I want the book about fire from the sky and beast from the sea read at my ceremony? But um, though it's often overlooked, the text we're in today, Revelation chapter 19, it has this passage within it that's meant to be a really formative passage for the way that Christians think about and understand marriage. Uh, and we're in our second week of a, of a new series called Marriage from God for Good. And what we're trying to, to dive into in this series is that God has created marriage to be this unbelievable gift for the good of people. And not just the, the people that are in that marriage, but really for the good of all people, for the common good. But then both inside and outside the church, we have this tendency to shrink our view of what marriage can be, of what marriage should be. And then to compound the problem, rather than being re-envisioned to pursue the design of God, Christians start to take this posture where we, get to, where we become more defined by what we're against than what we're for. But there's so much to be for when it comes to the way God has orchestrated this relationship, this human relationship of marriage. And that's what I hope that we see as we walk through this series together. So I know that we are people in all places this morning. There's some of us who are married. There's some of us here who are divorced. There's some of us here who are single. Uh, in a couple weeks, actually, we'll talk a lot about singleness and how we can develop a robust view of God's design for that, too. There's a lot to be said about singleness and how God has designed people to be single. But, e but today, uh, even if what we're going to talk about today doesn't immediately apply to where you're at in your life right now, I hope that all of us grow a little bit in our appreciation for the way that God in all of his brilliance and all of his intelligence and all of his majesty has designed, has orchestrated this relationship, this important and intimate relationship between husband and wife in marriage. About 10 years ago, uh, in one of his uh, stand-up shows, comedian Chris Rock said this. He said, you're either married and bored or you're single and lonely, there ain't no happiness anywhere. Married and bored, single and lonely, there ain't no happiness anywhere. And I think that's a really common perspective in our culture. Uh, the vast majority of people in our culture don't want to be single indefinitely. Like, we have this fear of being isolated, of being lonely. But likewise, a lot of people are worried that marriage, if they decide to get married, will eventually make them bored. Or unhappy. One marriage researcher found that when she did a survey of lots of people, uh, most people think that only a third of married couples are actually happy. 
So the average person walking around out there, you ask them, hey, are married couples happy or not? Only a third say, yeah, most married couples are probably happy. Two-thirds of people think that married couples are either bored or unhappy or simply tolerating one another because it would be too inconvenient to break up the marriage at that point. So a lot of people in our culture, to a lot of people, it seems like that there's this choice that you have to make that has no good outcome. Stay single, be lonely, or get married and be bored. But either way, give up the notion that you're ever going to be happy in any way in life. But here's the thing. People want to be happy. We have this desire to be happy in our lives. So when we're presented with this choice that has no good outcome, it leads many people to seek out some other kind of solution to stave off the loneliness and stave off the, the boredom. Sometimes uh, it, it takes on all shapes and sizes. Sometimes we come up with new phrases like conscious uncoupling. Anybody hear that in the news? Gwyneth Paltrow, Chris Martin, celebrity couple. A conscious uncoupling, which I don't know if we're talking about people or like train cars anymore. <laughs> Sometimes it takes on these really extreme forms, people trying to stave off loneliness and boredom, like open marriage. Just a few weeks ago, there was a, a scandal uh, in the news. A particular website got hacked. All of these personal details were leaked. And the reason it was such a big deal was that this website, the sole purpose of this website is to help married people cheat on their spouse. It's to help married people have an affair. Right? It's not like a dating website that shady people use for that. The actually intended stated purpose of the website is to do just that. So people were clearly concerned when the information was leaked because everyone's going to find out who's on that site um, trying to do that. Those are more extreme examples. More commonly, this looks like hookup culture, where you sleep with someone and then afterward decide whether or not you actually want a relationship with them. Or it looks like long-term relationships where you live together and you kind of pretend to be married in most senses of the word without actually having to make the commitment that, that marriage is. These seem like good ways to avoid being lonely, but also to avoid being bored. They seem like ways we can actually be, be happy. This was actually captured really well uh, in a movie that came out a few years ago called He's Just Not That Into You. Anybody see that movie? And I don't know if I'm like allowed to keep my man card after... <laughs> After referring to that, we'll, we'll see. But in that movie, the, the storyline follows uh, a lot of different couples. Uh, they're in all different places in their lives and relationship. There's one particular couple. Uh, her name is Beth, played by Jennifer Aniston. And his name is Neil, played by Ben Affleck. And they've been together for seven years. And Beth wants to get married. Uh, she eventually gives Neil this ultimatum. But Neil, we come to find out, doesn't believe in marriage. And it has everything to do with this. It has everything to do with happiness. So at one point he says this. If you were legitimately happy, honestly, you wouldn't feel the need to make a big show of it. You wouldn't have to broadcast it. They, meaning people who get married, do it because they're insecure. And because they think that getting married is what they're supposed to be doing now. And so they're lying to themselves and they're lying to others. So here's the question. Is that true? Is that true? Is that what marriage is? Is it a lie for the insecure and the unhappy people of the world? Sadly, I think that that is what marriage devolves into in more instances than I wish it did. 
I think there's some truth to that. But a strong counterpoint to that view comes from the wisdom literature in Scripture. In, in the book of Proverbs, there's this father imparting all of this wisdom to his son. And he says things like, Rejoice in the wife of your youth, and enjoy her, and be satisfied in her. And he tells her that the one who finds a wife finds a good thing. So we have to ask, what's the lie? Where's the lie? Do you have to choose between singleness and loneliness or marriage and boredom? Or is marriage actually a source of great happiness? And if we're going to answer that question, we have to consider this deep question of what is marriage actually for? What is marriage for? And that's what brings us to our text this morning. Revelation is John's vision of where all of human history is heading. And as it nears the end of this vision, it depicts the consummation of all things. John sees something called the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. So I'm going to read those verses, and you can follow along with me. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. These are the true words of God. Uh, Let me pray for us this morning. God, we look to you and we confess that we need to be reawakened to the brilliance of your design for life in all aspects, including marriage. We need our eyes opened Lord, to see you for who you are and also who you've created us to be and how you've created us to live and how you've designed us to interact with other people and the world and creation around us. We pray that by looking at this marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19 this morning, God, that you would stir in us what might so quickly be cast aside in our fickleness, in our pursuit of fleeting, happy feelings, in our pursuit of staving off loneliness or or boredom, uh, would you stir in us uh, and reawaken in us, or awaken in us for the first time a vision for what you've designed this beautiful relationship of a marriage relationship to be. And we look to you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So here's the setting of, of Revelation 19. Jesus is returning for his people. And we read in Scripture, Jesus has come once. He came once in humility. He took on human flesh. He identified with us in our weakness. But then after his death and resurrection, he ascends to heaven. And he ascends with this promise that he's coming again. And what John sees is that this second coming is not in humility like the first one was. But the second coming is in triumph. Jesus comes, he comes back, and he puts down all of the rebellion that persists against him. And he is perfectly united with his people forever. And the picture that we have of this in Revelation 19 is a wedding. Jesus, the lamb, is the groom, 
and his people, the church, capital C, the church, uh, are the bride. Now, this, of course, is not the first time that we hear this or see this in Scripture. Uh, Jesus himself used this same analogy in his parables as he lived and walked amongst people and, and did his life and ministry. He spoke about the consummation of the kingdom of God as a wedding festival, as a wedding feast. And he told people to, to keep their lamps ready so that when the groom came, they would be ready to go with him. And a few years after that, the Apostle Paul, in a really important and defining text on marriage, Ephesians chapter 5, he says that the relationship between a husband and wife in marriage is actually meant to reflect and display the relationship between Jesus and the church. So if we're going to consider what human marriage is for, we're going to think about that question, then the best place to look is to consider what the union of Jesus and the church is for. And through this scene here in Revelation 19, we get two answers to that, which is what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at. So we're going to see in Revelation 19, marriage is for holiness and marriage is for happiness. Marriage is for holiness Marriage is for happiness. So first, let's talk about how marriage is for holiness. The marriage here in Revelation 19 is a picture of holiness. And verse 8 says that it was granted to the bride, to the people of God, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, that the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the scene here is of this holy and pure bride. And that's because... When Jesus and his people are united forever in this marriage, his people have become, in that moment, completely holy, completely perfect. Christians sometimes use the word sanctification to talk about this. It's a big, fancy theological word. What is sanctification? Sanctification refers to God's people being cleansed, being set apart as holy, and being perfected in Christlikeness. And there are these different stages to sanctification with important distinctions that it's worth talking about just really briefly this morning. So there's initial sanctification. Because of what Jesus has done, he's come, he's lived a perfect life, he's died, he's risen from the dead. Because of that, when we repent of our sin and we believe in him, there's a fundamental change that happens in us. uh, Scripture talks about how we are cleansed from the stain of sin. That we become new creatures in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. So sometimes when we read about sanctification in Scripture, it's spoken of as something that's already happened. It's past tense. You have been washed. You have been sanctified. There's also progressive sanctification. And most of the time when Christians use this word sanctification, that's usually what they're referring to. It's this ongoing process of putting sin to death and becoming more and more like Jesus in our lives. If any of you have uh, been Christians for a period of time, you know this is a really slow and painful process. The Apostle Paul says it's it's one degree of glory to another. We like to think that it's going to happen like 10 degrees of glory at a time. It's one degree of glory to another. And it's almost always through circumstances that you and I would never choose for ourselves. The other part about it is, it lasts your entire lifetime. It lasts your entire lifetime. You never arrive at the perfection of Jesus this side of heaven. But we're also promised that this is a a process 
that though it won't reach its completion in this life, God will bring this to completion. And the third stage is what we call final sanctification. There's the initial, there's the progressive, there's final sanctification. And this is when all of the sin that is in us is completely eradicated. And all of the effects of sin on us, disease and death and decay and strife between people and war and violence, all the effects of sin are completely eradicated. And we are completely restored to the perfection and the holiness that we were created to have as those who bear the image of God. That's what's happening in Revelation chapter 19 in this marriage supper of the Lamb. The process in Revelation 19, the process is over. It's been brought to completion by the one who does what we could never do for ourselves. And when Jesus returns, sin is done, and it's granted to the people of God to wear white, symbolic of the purity, symbolic symbolic of the perfection that is now theirs. And the picture that John sees in this vision, the picture that God chooses to reveal that to John, is marriage. And that means that there's going to be some great and important implications for our marriages as well. So in Ephesians chapter 5, which next week Ryan Egley, uh, who is uh, planting uh, a Liberty Church in the Mount Aryan Germantown neighborhoods of Philadelphia, he'll be here with us and he'll look in depth at Ephesians 5. But a quick preview of that, verses 25 through 27 charge husbands in a marriage relationship to love their wives just like Jesus loves the church, which is, the Apostle Paul says in that passage, giving himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, he might cleanse her, he might present her without blemish. So this is really where we get the idea that human marriage is for holiness. Just as Jesus is for the holiness of his people, Spouses are meant to be for the holiness of one another. And marriage is meant to be this primary venue where this ongoing process is carried out. So here's the design of God that I hope we're reawakened to. According to the design of God, husbands and wives are instruments of God's sanctification in one another's lives. Husbands and wives are instruments of God's sanctification in one another's lives. Now, this is true of all kinds of Christian friendships and Christian community. This is the way Christian community is meant to work. We're instruments of God's sanctification in one another's lives. But there's a unique and specific plan for that in marriage. And that's because in a marriage, whether you want this to be the case or not, you become known more genuinely and more deeply than you do in any other human relationship. That's actually the design. That's actually why God says that people leave their families of origin and are united to one another and the two become one flesh. In that one flesh covenantal bond, you share everything. You are naked in every sense of the word. Not just the physical and sexual sense of the word, but emotionally and mentally and spiritually. In any other way that you might be exposed and naked before one another, that's this one flesh covenantal bond of marriage is for So you're known at this deeper, more authentic depth than you are in any other realm. And that means that there's the greatest potential to have your sin known, exposed, and also rooted out and fought against in a marriage relationship. 
So one of the many examples of this, because I could list probably hundreds from my own life, uh, I can be relationally disengaged. It's a sin pattern of mine that I have to pay close attention to in my life, that I have to fight against actively in my life. But the vast majority of you will never know that about me experientially. And among other reasons, one is because as your pastor, my job is to be relationally engaged with you. Like, how awkward would that be if, like, we were getting together to talk about something going on in your life, and I, like, kicked back on a couch and, like, pulled out a phone to check out sports scores or, like, CNN? Like, that wouldn't work very well. I probably wouldn't be your pastor very, very long at that point. So who gets to see that exposed? My wife does. More than anybody else, she gets to see that. Who does that affect more than anybody else? It affects my wife. But also, it gives her the best platform, the best opportunity to call that out in me and to become an ally with me in fighting against that sin in my life, along with all the other sins in in my life. Now, this is different than the way that most people think about marriage. In more traditional cultures and more traditional views, what's marriage for? Marriage tends to be viewed as something that's for social stability or something that's for family status, right? You try to marry into the right family so you get invited to the right parties, get the right job, that kind of thing. In more contemporary societies, marriage is about what's best for me. It's about the, the romantic thrill or it's about some, some aspect of self-actualization. You know, I'm, I'm the best version of myself when I'm with this person. And perhaps some of those things come as byproducts of a marriage, but none of those things is what marriage is for. Just like our union with Jesus is ultimately, ultimately means that we're presented blameless, our union with our spouse in marriage is meant for holiness. Now, the second thing, then, we need to see from Revelation 19 is that marriage is for happiness. The marriage here in Revelation 19, it's also a picture of happiness. This huge multitude that's there in heaven is rejoicing. It's a scene of unparalleled joy as the saints of God are perfectly united with Jesus for all of time. And part of this same consummation of all things, like where all of human history is headed, is, as author Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it in the Jesus Storybook Bible, all of the sad things coming untrue. All of the sad things coming untrue. And just two chapters later, in this same vein of Jesus bringing the, the, the consummation of all things... In Revelation 21, we see Jesus wiping away every tear from every eye. We see that death is no more. We see that there's no more mourning or crying or pain because the former things have passed away. So this is the happiest day in human history. And it makes sense that happiness and holiness go hand in hand at this marriage supper of the Lamb. If all of those former things have passed away, well, what's left except happiness and enjoyment? The root of all of that unhappiness is sin. And that's why when we see Jesus bring about the complete holiness and perfection of his people, it coincides with complete happiness. Sin is gone, and therefore so is all of the sadness and pain. So here's what we see in Revelation 19. The holiest day is the happiest day, and the happiest day 
is the holiest day. And we have to see those two things go hand in hand because often when we translate that into what this should look like in our own marriages, we set this up as an either-or choice. Your marriage can either be about holiness or it can be about happiness. And while the world makes it about happiness, so Christians are going to make it about holiness. On one hand, I really appreciate that. I really appreciate that. I think it's really important. If what we mean when we talk about happiness is this completely subjective, fleeting emotion, then yeah, that's the wrong focal point for our marriages. We have to calibrate our understanding of happiness, which here in Revelation 19 has everything to do with being transformed. It has everything to do with sin being put to death. It has everything to do with the radiance of God's people as they increasingly are conformed to the image of Christ. And when our sin is exposed, when it's ripped out of us, when we're pruned, like Jesus talks about in John chapter 15, we don't tend to use words like happy to describe that process. It's really painful. So we need to see that marriage is meant for something deeper than emotional happiness. But there's also this danger that we would put blinders on and that we would be afraid of the happiness that's actually meant to be part of this picture too. And I think that we are especially guilty of this, and I think that we are especially prone to this in theologically reformed tribes and circles. No one refers to groups like Liberty Church as the quote-unquote happy-clappy variety of Christianity. You know, We tend to uh, do way better at things like duty and obligation than we do emotion. So many of us in the room this morning, I'm sure, we're fine with the idea that marriage is covenantal. And we're fine maybe with the idea that marriage is about holiness. We might not like it in, in, in actuality, but we're fine with that idea. But our pursuit of that can then become predominantly characterized by obligation. And it starts to lack the affection And it starts to lack the joy. And yes, it starts to lack even the emotional happiness that we have every reason to experience. And there's this hardened kind of stoicism that can creep in where you start to view your marriage with this perspective and you say, I will stay in this marriage until I die. And your spouse is like, well, maybe you should just hurry up and get there. (laughs) Because this is miserable, you know? I have an admittedly uh, limited experience in this, but from my limited experience of being a young adult and college director in in Kansas City and then being a pastor here, most of the the marriage counseling and the issues that I get invited to speak into in reformed circles, they're not so much about this unwillingness to pursue commitment or to pursue a covenantal-type relationship. And let me just say this, praise God for that. In a in a world that's characterized by consumer relationships and contractual relationships, I don't take that for granted at all. Like, I'm grateful for that. But much more often, the the, the situations that I'm invited to speak into, marriages start to experience a tragic lack of affection. And it happens when this covenantal bond starts to be viewed as a loveless obligation. But here's the thing. It's not supposed to be an either-or choice. 
It's not supposed to be an either-or choice. That's about as terrible an either-or choice as Chris Rock's joke that you have to either be single and lonely or married and bored. If the happiest day in the history of humanity is the holiest day, if the holiest day is the happiest day, and if that day is depicted as the marriage of Jesus and the church, and then if we're told that our marriages are meant to be a reflection of that marriage of Jesus and the church, then marriage is an invitation into holiness and happiness. Now, I know the analogy breaks down. I know the analogy breaks down. I know that human marriages break down because you and I are nowhere near as faithful as Jesus is. So let's just get that out there. This is going to break down. But the point of looking at a text like Revelation 19 is so that God might open our eyes to see what he has designed marriage for. And to hold high that beautiful picture knowing full well that we won't perfectly experience that in our marriages. We won't, and that's because we won't become completely holy in this life. We can't. That doesn't happen until this day that John sees in Revelation 19. And therefore, if we're not going to become completely holy in this life, nor will we become completely happy in this life. But we can genuinely experience the sanctification of God through our marriages. And we can, in a unique way, experience that transformation one degree of glory to another in this uniquely designed human relationship. Therefore, we can also genuinely experience happiness in marriage in a way that some of you have probably given up on. And in a way that some of you, maybe even right now, this morning, in this moment, are on the cusp of giving up on. So how do we do that? How do we do that? How do you experience and pursue both holiness and happiness in a marriage relationship? I won't claim to have all the answers. This is, I think, a critical piece of it. We learn to look at our spouse with the eyes of Jesus. We learn to look at our spouse with the very same eyes with which Jesus looks at us and looks at his people. How does Jesus look at you? How does Jesus look at his people? When Jesus looks at us, he sees us exactly as we are. Weak, broken, rebellious, stubborn people. But that's never all that Jesus sees. In the exact same moment, Jesus sees who you will become. He sees who you will become. He sees the completed picture, the image of God in you, restored to its full glory before the fracture of sin marred it so badly. He sees who you will become because he's given his own body, he's given his own blood to purchase that future for you. And it's been granted to you that you get to wear white, that you get to be presented blameless before him on this great day of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And because Jesus has done that work, we get to look at our spouse with the exact same eyes. Fully recognizing, fully aware of their shortcomings, but at the exact same time, seeing something so much more than that. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, uh, Tim Keller says it way more eloquently than I could. So let me just read what he says. Within this Christian vision for marriage, Here's what it means to fall in love. It's to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating. 
and to say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you, and I want to partner with God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. Each spouse should see the, the great thing Jesus is doing in the life of their mate through the word, the gospel. Each spouse should then give him or herself to be a vehicle for that work and envision the day that you will stand together before God, seeing each other presented in spotless beauty and glory. In marriage, we get to be an instrument of that in our spouse's life. Like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Like, we get to do something that significant in a human relationship? And here's what's more. It is impossible to look at your spouse with these kinds of eyes and not begin to feel a deep and sincere affection and happiness for who that person is and for the gift that you get to be married to him or her and you get to have a front row seat in their life for what God is doing. So I don't know this morning how hopeful or hopeless you find yourself. Uh, we can't make each other have the eyes to see one another this way in our marriage. I can't like say, hey, look at your spouse that way and it'll just happen magically. I wish I could. I can invite you to pray like this and to ask God to open your eyes to see your spouse in the very same way that he sees you, sees his people. Because really this is the core of the message of the gospel. This is the core of the good news of the Christian faith. We are far worse than we could possibly imagine. And yet at the very same moment, we are more loved than we could ever dream. And Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, scorning the shame, and then rising victoriously from the grave, he sets about this work of purifying a people for himself a people who get to clothe themselves in fine linen, bright and pure. So because we have been loved with that kind of love, because when he comes again, our perfected and holy selves will be united with him forever. May we reclaim the realities that our marriages are for holiness and that our marriages are for happiness. Because anything less, anything less, and we miss the beauty and the good of God's design for marriage. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, lift our eyes to you as the one who accomplishes what we could not. We cannot perfect ourselves, and that's the whole point of what you have done in your death and your resurrection. Jesus, thank you for the work that you have begun in us by faith that you will present us blameless before yourself on this great day, this marriage supper of the Lamb. May our marriages between human beings, fallible as we are, reflect the beauty of your relationship with the church. May you use us for the holiness of one another. And may we also see how the holiest day is the happiest day and the happiest day is the holiest day. May we be happy 
and have this deep affection when we look at our spouse with the eyes that Jesus has looked at us with. And as we come to this table this morning, we are reminded of how much we needed you to look at us like that, Jesus. That we needed you to look at us in compassion because we could not. But you did that and you have come and you have finished the work by your death and resurrection. We come this morning as weak people. We come acknowledging our need for you to continue to pour out your mercy and grace in our lives. Strengthen us that we might actually show the very same love we have received to one another. And meet with us as we come to this table. We pray this in your name. Amen.